HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Cooking issues! That's 718-497-2128. It's Dave Arnold with Cooking Issues coming to you live every Tuesday on the back of Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Here with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez and Jack and Joe in the engineering booth. How are you guys doing today? Hey. (laughs) All on two hours sleep. Can you believe that? Two hours sleep. Yeah. Well, that's why we needed a theme song like this one. Yeah, Jack. I like the fact that we have... uh, It's so stupid. Like I go into the crazy mode and then here I am back in normal, normal mode. No, anyway, but we have like uh, we have two songs, which is awesome. So we have the break song, the, and then we have the, the the crazy you know get me going with no sleep song. We'll take more. Yeah, With listeners, we'll take more. Yeah, I'm. Um, by the way, Joel, I'm, I'm trying to get McGee to call in and, and read the Maillard stuff, but you know, Let's do it for Christmas. It's uh, oh, that's going to be his Christmas present if oh, I can convince McGee to do that. Yeah. Who? Oh well, whatever. I mean, like you know, I can give someone a Christmas present regardless of whether they celebrate. It's not like True. it's not like I'm smacking them in the face. Like a gift is a gift. If someone yeah. wants to, give, hey, look, anyone out there wants to give me a gift from some other religion, I'm glad to accept it. See? Me too. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. What about you guys? Uh, it depends. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's like no Zoroastrian gifts. Right? What, what, what gift would you not accept, Jack? Was that Jack or Joe who wouldn't accept? That, that was me, Jack, and I, I don't know. I mean, are there, like, Scientology holidays? Oh. You know? I think, I think not. I think not, too. <laughs> like, I don't know. But maybe there's Scientology gifts. Uh, well, there's, there's always one Scientology gift. Dianetics. Okay. Um, <laughs> we have a question in. Uh, by the way, seriously, you can call in your questions live to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Oh, this weekend we had the, the CNN thing went on. I cannot believe that Nastasha managed 
to not be on that entire half-hour program. They never asked me. Uh, they didn't ask Piper either, and yet he's on. You know why? Because he didn't hide away from the camera. I did not hide. I was in clear view. Well, that's actually not You rescheduled your flight back that to the country to miss the yes, Cooking Issues yes, episode when they... Yeah, I went through a lot of hoops. You're like, yeah, have him come that day. Everything's fine. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to be here. They came the second time, though. Yeah, but they'd already done most of the shoot. You, uh, look, look, just people, like, people, she does not want to be on the camera. I don't She's like a crazy being on person. Camera, no. She's a crazy person. But not just for that reason, many reasons. Please call in and convince her that next time she should not hide from uh, the cameras. But I thought it was good. It was fun. Expose, I will be on the camera. I like it's an expose. Speaking of expose, uh, I was very happy with the program. I enjoyed it, um, which is unusual. I detest watching myself in any, any form. But the. Um, so CNN did a blog, and the blog post that they decided to do was on liquid nitrogen. So they – like I don't know. They put the liquid nitrogen, and then the internet trolls came out of their freaking caves and were typing all sorts of nonsense about liquid nitrogen. So first of all, it was all about that awful case we talked about. Um, you know, a couple of weeks, a month ago now, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Where the, this, like, you know, incredibly unfortunate, this 18-year-old uh, woman in uh, England was served uh, liquid nitrogen to drink, which is a horrible and, and unconscionable thing for a bartender to do, and she lost her stomach. And it's horrible and completely awful, but also uh, would never happen with anyone who's using uh, liquid nitrogen properly. But you get all these, like, freaks on the internet who have no idea what they're talking about, and they just are slamming, uh, slamming me for using liquid nitrogen, saying things that are patently untrue about liquid nitrogen. Like, for instance, this one person, and this, I commented once to set some stuff straight, and then Nastasha was like, don't comment again. Just leave it alone. Leave it alone. Leave it alone. But here, it's my radio show. I get to do what I want. So they, this one person says, uh, who's, by the way, their actual name is, yeah, right. That's their handle. Oh, I know. I'm kidding. Okay. Because any anonymous jerk sitting alone in their underwear can make comments on the internet like they are like they know what's going on. But anyways, so what happened is they, they say, well, you know, there's always the possibility for human error. So there's, there's no reason to do it, which is, I mean, the possibility for human error using liquid nitrogen, if you use it properly in terms of a, of a customer getting hurt that way, like a horrible thing that happened in England, is roughly on the order of saying that if a chef was chopping onions in a plain view of a customer, that they might trip and throw the knife through the customer's head. <laughs> and and that if that happened, then uh, you know we should ban the use of knives in kitchens. It's t- simply ridiculous. Like I cannot state in stronger terms how awful it is what happened in England and how thoroughly, thoroughly punished the person is who did that and how freaking horrible it is that they that they did that and and i also cannot emphasize in stronger terms that that is not a reason to ban the use of liquid nitrogen and that people writing in on the internet simply don't know what they're talking about and i kept on getting the, the gimmick crap the guys the guys who are against liquid nitrogen by and large are throwbacks it seems from their writing to like a very old school of thought where it, they just think everything's a party trick they don't they're not bothering to to pay attention forget what i'm doing with it or you know anyone at the bar anyone that knows me or is associated with me if you look around there are many uh, many uses of liquid nitrogen that are they're not uh, gimmicks right i'm sure there there are uses of liquid nitrogen that are gimmicks in the same way that if you go to a benihana no offense to the benihana people but if you go to benihana their knife use is a gimmick. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So 
yes, a knife can be used as a gimmick and liquid nitrogen can be used as a gimmick. And a knife can be used to, you know, cook and liquid nitrogen can be used uh, – well, it won't cook because it's cold. But you know what I'm saying, right? Is that enough? Elliot Papineau tweets, please also ban fire. It's very dangerous. You know, he's right. It is extremely dangerous. I've been burnt several times this year alone, <coughs> you know. Uh, but uh, anyway, so that goes into uh, – uh, we have a question. Um, oh, I don't have the person. Oh, from Paul uh, at American Meltdown. He says, I graduated from FCI back in 07. We didn't get to interact much. I was in the last class of the old four-phase uh, culinary tech uh, paradigm, and there was no culinary technology stuff. Uh, I had a question about well, – we, I was there, but I didn't wasn't teaching the, the regular – Blah, blah, blahs, I guess, yet. Anyways. Uh, no, I did. Anyway, whatever. Uh, I had a question about liquid nitrogen. I own and operate the American Meltdown food truck in North Carolina. Uh, we serve uh, gourmet melts and grilled cheeses. I like grilled cheese. You like grilled cheese sauce? Love. You love, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the few things, Nastasha, actually, I can, I can legitimately say Nastasha loves herself a grilled cheese. Do you like it's anything? The first time I've heard her say the word love on the show, I think. I know it. I know it. Favorite. Is, is it be- your 2012 love. <laughs> is it because your mom didn't make grilled cheese that way? Yeah, she did. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy things on your grilled cheese, or do you like... What kind of cheese do you like? What, what Gruyere. Cheddar. Uh, Mixed, well, that's the other love you have, Swiss. Mm-hmm. What, was the, what was the second one? Cheddar. Ch- cheddar. It doesn't melt very well. Mm. You, like you don't care? Flavor. I don't care. All right. Do you, what do you think about American cheese? No. Don't D- like it. You don't like it? Don't like it. I, you're patriotic, David. I'm not... not patri- it has nothing to do with patriotism. Do you know where American cheese was invented? In England. <laughs> oh. Oh, in Switzerland, maybe. It's, it was in Europe, anyway. It was not here. It was invented... Actually, no, it was invented by the Swiss. It's been for the Swiss nostalgia. You know why? I will look As a fond, Look it up right American now. The, the, book, the book, which I da- downloaded somewhere on my computer, is Processed Cheese Analogs. But I believe Processed Cheese was invented by the Swiss, which makes sense because of their love of freaking fondue. But look it up. Anyway. Uh, back to the question. I had a question about liquid nitrogen. Bop, bop, bop. Uh, I wanted to bring on some liquid nitrogen uh, for a play on frozen grilled cheese. I don't know how you would freeze a grilled cheese, though. But anyway. We'll, we'll, I don't know. I mean, like, but in other words, if you freeze a grilled cheese, it's frozen grilled cheese. I don't understand. But anyway. Uh, I've had some difficulty with equipment. I found the place to buy the liquid nitrogen, and the guys will let me carry it off in a styrofoam box. As far as dispensing it, do I need a tank? Uh, where would I get a tank to hold LN? I saw uh, some one-liter ones at McQueenLabs.com. In my head, I have a tank with a hose, and I would put something like olive oil into a bowl and then squirt in the liquid nitrogen, and it would get the popcorn-like frozen shapes, which is similar to the Dan- you know, Danny Garcia the famous uh, Spanish chef used to make uh, frozen uh, olive oil in various ways but he, he actually did it exactly uh, in the reverse right so oh, is it, or would I pour some ladle some liquid nitrogen into a bowl and then pour the olive oil in that is what typically you would do so in fact I saw Danny Garcia once do the olive oil demo in a styrofoam box and um, when he's doing his stuff when he's when you're freezing olive oil the trick is is that it breaks up into little uh, pieces, uh, like almost like couscous. So he, if you sit in the LN long enough, it, it makes this like couscous-like thing. If you want like kind of foamy or denser things, he used to emulsify different amounts of water in to get different textures. The more water you add, the more it hurts your face though because the water hurts a lot when you put it in uh, cold frozen like that, whereas the uh, olive oil by itself doesn't have as high of a specific heat so it can't uh, actually um, – damage you as badly but anyway he would put uh olive oil in an isi canister shake it up and then 
foam it into the liquid nitrogen, and the aeration would also make it less damaging on the tongue, provide interesting texture, and get those popcorn-like things. So that's how Danny Garcia used to do it. And in fact, I did that demo once because we had a whole bunch of liquid nitrogen, and people wanted to see it. I'm like, all right, I'm now going to pretend I'm Danny Garcia because I hate doing other people's demos. So I literally was like, I'm I am Danny Garcia, but not. Anyway, and so I did like because I had seen him do his demos, so I did uh, you know I did a lot a lot of those. I mean, not as well as he did. I'm not trying to say I was, but anyway, I I, I did that. So um, okay, uh, so you don't if you're putting it in a styrofoam box, there's not much point in putting it into into something. I mean, a styrofoam box is not so good. You got to be careful when you have a styrofoam box because uh, they can crack, and if they crack, they dump liquid nitrogen everywhere. So you want to make sure that if you do use a styro, it's like like something sturdy like a fish tub and that you have it in a cardboard with uh, duct tape around it so that it doesn't break. Um, you can pour it into coffee carafes is the easiest way because uh, you're not going to be that uh, – you know, you're not going to be that efficient in storing it this way anyway. Eventually, you're going to want to go get like a 35-liter uh, doer or something like that. Um, okay, and uh, – do, you, you ask, do I need a tank? Will the LN just evaporate quicker without one? Yes, that's the case. It'll just evaporate quicker. And you know the problem with styrofoam boxes, they also have a fairly large surface area. So unless you keep it capped all the time, you're going to lose a lot. And when you pull the thing off, you're going to lose a lot. But if you're getting a cheap price on it, it's an okay way to start out. Just be careful that it can't slosh around because things can slosh out of those containers and then get liquid nitrogen all over everywhere. And if you're not being cautious, especially if you're in a food truck, never let it get in a situation where the liquid nitrogen is a Above the head of a customer and you're serving down to them with liquid nitrogen because then you could get liquid nitrogen you could pour it like you know potentially into their eyes or in, inside of a piece of their clothing where it could get trapped and cause uh, severe burns. You also want to make sure you don't have large amounts of liquid nitrogen inside of your truck unless your truck is completely ventilated to the outside so that you have no possibility of um, what's the word I'm looking for? Asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. Nastasha's like I don't know. Uh, oh, and it was the British, not Swiss, for American cheese. It was British? Yeah, British. For processed cheese in general? Look up processed cheese and melting salts in general. <laughs> That's not American cheese. Okay, well, clearly at least American cheese was invented by the Brits, but processed cheese in general, I believe, was invented by the Swiss. Keep so looking. So I've got 1911 by Walter Gerber in Switzerland. That's Boom! Wait, 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 wait. That's, Boom! That's, that's, wait. that's processed cheese. Yeah. James L. Kraft is the first who applied for a patent for the method in 1916, and then Kraft was the first to commercial commercially slice them, keep them, you know, sell them sliced in 1950. So in the U uh, in the U S. In the U S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, the Swiss. So That's Nastasha, your precious. Your, well, what do you think American cheese is? Hello, it's processed cheese uh, made with cheddar. Duh. Hey, by the way, just so you know, I've said this before on the show, but this is what I do with my kids. I give them a prize. Anyone, the first person who calls in, I'll send you $2 if you get this. So what is going to be more likely to produce a better emulsified uh, 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 processed cheese product, an aged cheese or a non-aged cheese? First caller in gets 2 bucks. I don't know. How, how am I going to get 2 bucks? Wow. PayPal. PayPal. We'll PayPal you 2 bucks. Okay. Um, now, uh, back on the thing. Uh, we are in an enclosed space being inside the truck, but there are two huge ventilation hoods, a service window, and a large back door that can swing open. Uh, I feel that has enough airflow, but I could be wrong. Thanks for your time and response. Uh, it could be enough airflow. Just make sure that there's no possibility that one of your workers is in there and it gets sealed, like, for instance, when you're driving. And if you're driving and they have a, like a big tub of liquid nitrogen and you get hit, it could dump over and then the entire styro cooler of liquid nitrogen is on the floor of your truck and it's sealed. And then you're shafted because you might have gotten knocked out and you can't open the window or something like that. So any time you have liquid nitrogen in a vehicle like that, it has to be away from you, secure, and all the windows have to be open, right? That's yes. what. That's the rule. That's the rule. Nastasha's like, I don't want to talk to you about it. We're on the show. What are you talking about? There's no one else I can talk to. 
please. Okay. Um, <laughs> Tony, Tony Herring writes in from the Mixing Bar in Brazil. Hey, Dave, Nastasia, Jack, and Joel. Uh, Joe. I don't know why I said Joel. Crazy, because we're going to talk about Joel, Joel later. Carter, yeah. yeah. Uh, salute from Brazil once again. This Tuesday, I've been invited to speak to a group of bartenders, media, and industry people uh, about the use of salt in drinks in Sao Paulo. They, uh, I want to go to Sao Paulo. I don't like Portuguese. The language or the, the people? The language, yeah. But uh, you don't like, like European Portuguese or Brazilian, Brazilian Portuguese? Brazilian Portuguese. But see, I like Brazilian Portuguese, but actual Portuguese makes no sense to me. It sounds like Russian. Is that why you like it? Sounds all crazy to me. Like like Portuguese from Portugal sounds all crazy to me, and like Brazilian Portuguese sounds like Portuguese to me. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, okay. Uh, the project is called Mentes Brilhantes, Brilhantes, Brilliant Minds, and is produced by the Brazilian cocktail site Mixology News to promote the uh, promote the exchange of ideas within our cocktail scene. My presentation is pretty much all set up, but it'll be awesome to include any hint or pointer from the Cooking Issues team. Uh, I know from the episode you did with Tony Canellaro that you use, or Tony C, as they say, Tony C. <laughs> Do you know that in America, when you pronounce the ball players, the dead, famous Boston Red Sox ball players' name, that they literally, even like I was talking to my 93-year-old, uh, my stepfather's father, my step-grandfather, whatever, you know, who's Italian, Adonisio, right, from Boston, Adonisio. Anyway, so he, he even says Canigliaro. Canigliaro. That's mm. what the Bostonites call them anyway, whatever. So I'm just going to start calling uh, Tony, Tony Canigliaro. What do you think? I like it. You like that? Mm-hmm. Tony Canigliaro. Anyway, that you use salt in a few drinks at Booker and Dax. In fact, we use them in most drinks in Booker and Dax. Anything that has um, any form of fruit in it, really, coffee, chocolate, anything like that has uh, uh, salt in it. Subthreshold, subthreshold. Uh, but would love to hear more of your experiences with it. I'm going to use the drink... Uh, the search for delicious to exemplify how salt can help bitterness in drinks. Participants will get a glass containing uh, chinar, punta mez, uh, and orange bitters, and will gradually add lemon juice and salt tincture. The salt tincture is going to be at 100 mils of uh, water and 15 grams of salt, which is roughly what we do, right? Uh, to see how it changes over time, um, tasting the drink at each step. Uh, I know it's a bold cocktail, uh, but it's pretty impressive how a few drops of salt and acid can really change this drink. The workshop is based on the article I wrote for Mixology News a while ago. But of course, it's in Portuguese, so it's useless to me because and I, I hate Google Translator. I'm sorry. Sorry, Tony. I can't stand the Google Translator. Do you like Google Translator? No, it's it's awful. Mm-hmm. It's always wrong. Mm-hmm. Always wrong. Um, any pointers, ideas about the use of salt in drinks and its effects would appreciated. Uh, I'm sure to mention a lot about you guys in the seminar. Cheers, Tony. Okay, so first of all, um, I was not aware of this word, but here's my favorite new title in the world. Maybe this is what you should become instead of uh, heir apparent. Maybe you should be chemosensory psychophysicist. <laughs> I think that's a real thing. It's real. Yeah, I know, but uh, people earn that. You think? Yes. You think that's like an earned title? Yeah. You can't just like it's like it's like everyone says I'm an architect. Did you go to architecture school? Did you t- pass a test? You know what I mean? It's like so you think it's like that? You yeah, have to actually pass I a do. test to be a chemosensory <laughs> psychophysicist. A Got the word in psycho there. in it. Yeah. Well, you can stick with that. But psychophysicist. Like, what if it's just psychophysicist and not chemosensory psychophysicist? Can you be that? Sure. Okay. Uh, anyway, so like very, very clearly, the uh, people who are the top of their game on this are uh, P.A. Breslin and uh, G.K. Beauchamp. And they work for Monell out of Philadelphia, and they've written all of the good articles on salt and bitterness. And some of the good ones you might want to look at, uh, like a lot of their like classic work was done in the late 90s. And so you might, might want to look up salt enhances flavor by suppressing bitterness. And uh, a, another good one is Salt Taste, <laughs> which is a chapter in a book. That one came out in uh, 2008, and that's uh, a good – it's good because it's a um, – it's what's called. It's a, it's a 
a review, a review section. Anyway, so the interesting thing is, and by the way, while I was researching this to get some more information, I learned some extremely interesting things. So everybody knows that, um, and I guess everybody doesn't know this, uh, if you present something that smells sweet with with something, that uh, it makes everything taste uh, sweeter. So like in other words, if I give you banana aroma and sugar, it tastes sweeter than if I just gave you banana aroma alone. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And if I add uh, certain things, but if, if I ask you to evaluate, and then things have different synergies. So typically if you add salt, salt masks bitterness. So it, like if you add salt to it, bitterness level is reduced. Typically if you, but what's crazy is, is if I ask you to rate, it, there's very recent scholarship that, that when you just have someone rate a single thing like sweetness, they could all make sense. But that if you actually say, for instance, in sweet, if you're going to do a sour and salt together, if you ask someone to rate the – wow, someone just tossed a pizza on someone's chest. It was awesome. Sweet. You see that? Yeah. It's like we watched the, the kind of like dining room here and there was a, there was a pizza chest toss. Anyway. Grease on cashmere. Yeah, Grease on cashmere. That, that's a good band. Anyone out there, you're welcome. Grease on cashmere. That sounds like a lot like – remember that band Lubricated Goat? No. Yeah. I, was it, was lubricated goat the one who had the album circumcised peanut? Look that up. Someone wow, look I'll up have whether to search that. Yeah, see 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 whose album was circumcised peanut. I think it might have been lubricated goat. Um, great band names, family show. Okay, so uh, back to what I was saying. So, but if you actually tell someone, okay, now rate salt and 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 sour separately, they can. They can rate it. But anyway, in general, salt is extremely complicated. So the way, so, the way, the way it affects your taste. So the way it affects your taste is, um, is very dependent on concentration. So when you add salt, for instance, like some people add salt to coffee. When you're adding salt to things uh, in low concentrations, you s- – so, OK, look. Ah, I get so I get so like all know, over myself. My, my head's going at like a million miles a minute. And I can't – I got to slow it down. Slow it down. Slow down the head. OK. If you take a bitter – and a bitter component and let's say a sweet component and you have them together the in a drink the bitter component and the sweet component will mutually suppress each other does that make sense mm-hmm. right so it'll taste both less sweet and less bitter but if you add salt to that right even fairly small amounts of salt to that mixture what ends up happening is uh, the salt suppresses the bitterness but also undoes the uh, undoes the suppression that the bitterness did to the sweetness, so it tastes even sweeter. So it tastes like the bitterness is going down and the sweetness is going up, even though actually what's happening is you're unmasking the, the you're unmasking the bitter is no longer masking up the sweetness. And this is like really super interesting work that like Beauchamp and Breslin did uh, out of Monell, and like everyone should everyone should kind of kind of read that. But just in um. In very kind of uh, round terms, in the article, Salt Enhances the Flavor uh, by Suppressing Bitterness, uh, he says, Our data shows that in addition to adding desired saltiness to food, salt potentiate flavor through the selective suppression of bitterness and perhaps other undesirable flavors and the release from suppression of palatable flavors such as sweetness. The desire for NACL and other salts in foods as diverse as often bitter vegetables, oily foods, and meats may be due in part to their ability to suppress unpleasant flavors. This may explain why it is difficult to make low sodium foods acceptable that's a quote from from that article another interesting thing that uh, Beauchamp in his uh, in his what's what's that thing called a 
the review article uh, gives a really interesting example that you can smack your friends across the face with sub-threshold uh, sub salt, right? And I've said this a million times on the air, but I've never said it so succinctly, and that's why these are the smart guys. Uh, this is in salt taste. So, Nastasha, does bread taste like the average loaf of bread? Does it taste salty? No. No, it doesn't, right? No. So I would call that sub-threshold salt, right? Uh, and so, but when you get Tuscan bread, it what? Tastes good. It sucks. Everyone knows it sucks. You're just being ornery. Tuscan bread has no salt and it sucks. And so that shows you kind of the incredible rounding effect that salt can have on something even though it's below a threshold. And that, in fact, is the exactly thing what Beauchamp says. Uh, he says – I think it's a he. I don't know. Maybe woman. She, he. I don't know. Um, uh, that consider again bread and bread products. The salt in these make up the single largest source of sodium consumed in the U.S. diet. I did not know that. Uh, I did not know that. Yet we typically do not perceive bread as salty. Bread without salt tastes insipid or bad, like Tuscan bread does. Uh, that's emphasis is mine. Uh, when salt is added, the flavor is enhanced without making the bread taste salty. Thus, salt, when added to food, must have functions other than adding saltiness. And then goes on to explain uh, what they are. Wow. Wow. Th- what? Those guys are. What, you just, uh, you yeah. make it, they can't see. You got to say what's going on if you're going to make a comment. There's some really like whacked out customers that just left right now. Well, first of all, it's raining cats and dogs here. It's like the day you'd never need sunglasses in in Bushwick, and uh, two these, of the three of the group are wearing sunglasses. Yeah, and like you know, major like you know, leaning back, and, yeah. and then you know, I had to actually use. It's interesting. I had to use the women's bathroom today before the show. Uh, and by the way, the Roberta's people apparently love women a lot more than they love men. Because yeah, your bathroom is. You've been yes. to the men's bathroom? Mm-hmm. Yeah, men's bathroom hellhole. But not just because it's filthy, because men are filthy. Just it's like laid out. Like I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> so your you know your legs are smashing into the sink. I don't care. You know. So the, so the door is going to clock you in the head. If you know, who cares? You're a dude. You know what I mean? The women's like you know you could turn around. You know, you can wash your hands. The spigot's not like, you know, like half a millimeter off of the f- – I mean, what? What? But anyway, so the reason I went into the women's bathroom, I was given specific okay because apparently uh, uh, a couple had gone in there and they were finishing up last night's festivities. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not, it's not that they're like that in the morning. It's still nighttime for them. Yeah, uh, we'll see when Indie Jesus isn't around all hell breaks. <laughs> Boom! Oh, that's a good one. Oh, jeez, that's good. That's good business. All right, and two, uh, just just to break it down the line for you. For example, this is a quote again from uh, from these guys. For for example, subthreshold salt levels increase perceived sweetness and decrease perceived acidity, whereas subthreshold sugar concentrations make a food taste less salty than it actually is. And in very weak concentrations, salt might actually enhance the flavor of acids because it's not linear; it changes whether it's subthreshold, superthreshold, and how much. So the answer is there. There is no answer. You like that? I like that. Nastasha loves. Uh, there is no answer. Ooh. You want to go to our first commercial break? Let's do it. Is that for me? Yeah. <laughs> Cooking issues. Thank you. 
here so far? Support the network and become a member. Membership helps us bring you the best food radio in the world and gives you access to thousands of dollars in discounts at the sustainably-minded businesses that support us. To become a member, visit heritageradionetwork.org today. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Ooh, reverb. Uh, We have a caller, yeah? Yeah, caller, you're on. Caller, you're on the air. Yeah, hey, Dave. Mark Jensen here down in Lexington, Kentucky. Nice. Hey, man, I've been listening to you guys, Nastasia, Jack, Joe. It's been, man, a dream to, let, to get all this information over the radio. It's fantastic. Oh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. What do you got for us? All right, this is apropos because I'm also a food truck owner, and this also can kind of uh, have something to do with Portuguese cooking. So, so here we <laughs> go. I'm doing a Macau-style pork chop bun tomorrow for a gig. And, of course, it has some kind of Portuguese influence and Chinese influence. But my big question is, I'm going to coat this in a starch and then deep fry it after I marinate the pork chop. After I marinate the pork chop. On starches, what do you think lends to a more crispy crust if I'm just really powder coating it? I'm not going to do a batter. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's everyone has their own feeling. First of all, you're gonna you said you're gonna sous vide it and then like bring it. They're gonna be thin enough that you're just gonna fry from cold after their after their uh, low temp. Is that what you said you're gonna exactly. do? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, I mean, I think there's a, there are a couple things you're gonna look. At. Everyone has their own view about uh, kind of what's going on, but the issue with any kind of skim coat is that you're you're you're. Unless it's dry, it's hard to get like a real crunchy surface on it. Unless you know, I, I need to do more research on it. I've, I learned here at Roberta's they do a, a chicken that's a variant of a kind of a well-known restaurant that was closed at the time but is open again called Pies and Thighs, and they literally take it out of their brine, throw it into flour, and then fry it. So apparently, like everything I learned, because when I learned it was you know you'd make a pellicle. Uh, you know, you dry it real, real so to get adhesion, and then you do uh, flour, liquid flour fry, which is not what you're looking to do. But these guys go directly into the the starch from wet. Were you going to go into the starch from wet or no? Uh, I was thinking about patting it dry at least. Yeah, right. All right, uh, but but not a multiple coat. I'm keeping it thin, uh, and I was leaning toward uh, a corn flour. Uh, Keeping it in the kind of Chinese tradition, but uh, that corn exactly is, is old world. But right, I mean, you know, I've done I've done uh, rice starch batters, and they're they're you know they have that a certain flavor, and in fact, some people even if would put uh, you know, but you, you can't in your application, but they they put some uh, uh, you know cow in there, some some basic stuff in there to, to alter it. Or, or baking soda, even, but you know Nils uh, Norin always used to use uh, water chestnut uh, flour, and he swore by water chestnut flour. Uh, now, not chestnut flour. The the storeroom used to make that mistake all the time. Water chestnut flour, and it was uh-huh. it was good, but that was what he always used to swear by. 
you know, and I don't know which one of the countries over there that he was working in where he picked it up. I don't know whether he picked that up in China. I don't know if he picked it up in Singapore. I don't know where he picked it up. But that mm-hmm. was that was his go-to for when we when we used to do the whole uh, fish, the whole striped bass, and he wanted and we would pull it out. We would only let it you know dry off for a second. He would always dust it in um, water chestnut flour and. I have to admit, it was better in my in my memory than when we just used you know plain uh, wheat flour or any of the other kind of uh, normal normal starches. You might want to look at a modified starch like crisp coat uh, or something like that, and it's not going to be too expensive in the um, in the quantities that you're using. Probably, at least you know, mm-hmm. unless you're going to do it forever. I think you can get that stuff from Modernist Pantry, uh, but you know that stuff. It, you know, when it's designed to form a kind of a moisture barrier so that it uh, you know. It, crisp coat hence its name crisp coat but it could be added also to other starches so you don't need to use exclusively that in fact in industrial usage they use it only at around i think around 10 percent usage ratio versus other starch but it definitely is built to increase uh, adhesion and crispness in the uh in the in the coating so you might want to look into something like that interesting do you think that uh, crisp coat is something that is put into say wondra Wondra, uh, you know, I've also never done a lot of testing with frying with Wondra. Wondra is, is just like uh, it's it's uh, agglomerated so that it dissolves, uh, you know, uh, easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are some people who swear by Wondra coatings in their in their frying, but I, I used it only once or twice in tests. And I, you know, my feeling was that it had a weird taste, but it could have been something else. I I really didn't give it enough of a test to. To say that I love it or or I don't, and for some reason I never got in the habit of keeping Wondra around for gravies because I, you know, I just it's I, unnecessary. Right, it's not necessary. It, it, and and by the way, I'm not a, like an it needs to be necessary kind of a guy. It's just I just never bothered. It never bothered becoming a part of my my pantry. But there are people who swear by it. Have you ever mm-hmm. tried? Have you ever tried it? Or do you like it? Hello. Oh, I'm still here. Yeah. Me? No, I'm not a wonder guy either. Uh, it's just a, something that's down here in the south more. Uh, and I was wondering, since you ma- mentioned Chris Coat, that maybe that was part of its uh, profile. Yeah, no, no. It's, it's just, a, I mean, in other words, like what they do to certain starches, like if you look up the natural, National Starch, which is a starch company that I like to go to a lot, uh, they, you know, they have a lot of agglomerated starch products. For instance, like Wondra is the, is the starch equivalent of Ultra Spurs versus Ultra Tex. So, you know, it's prehydrated. Um, the, well, those are prehydrated, Ultra Spurs and Ultra Tex. I don't really know how Wondra is done, but the, one's agglomerated so that it dissolves easily and doesn't clump up, and the other one's a pain in the butt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. Well, I may check into that water chestnut flour. We've got some good Asian markets here, and I might be able to source that. Uh, yeah, and I'm, awesome. ju- I'm just doing it off the top of my head, so you should, uh, when you do some research on it, let us know what happened. Send us a tweet or something. Excellent. I shall, man. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. All righty, good luck. Bye. Uh, why does my iPad shut down? I hate that. Okay. Oh, by the way, we got a question. We have, uh, Jack, we're okay over there? We have another caller. We got another caller? Caller, you're on the air. Uh, yeah, Dave. A uh, couple questions about pressure cooker stock and then one about sweet potato fries, if I'm not taking up too much time. No, let's go. Let's do it. Um, okay, so when I make pressure cooker stock, which you got me started on and I'm having outstanding results with, okay. if, if I just don't open the lid on a Kunwe cone duramatic after the last extraction, however many I'm doing, is it? sealed enough to just be canned and like room temperature stable for a day or two all right that's an excellent question uh excellent excellent question 
And um, okay, so if you were to, if you were to, uh, when you bring it up to pressure, like just do a couple of ch- 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 vent to get all the extra air out, and you've done it a couple of times, I I would say. I would I would be okay with it. I've not not done the studies because if you look at actual pressure canning, um, they're very very clear that you need to purge the entire thing from with air and then uh, have it be full steam before you start your timing on it for being canned. But I think the reason they're doing that is because they're they're cooking it for a bare minimum amount of time and they don't want air trapped in next to the food particle which is going to slow heat transmission and therefore going to slow the rate of cooking. I think that if you're doing a stock for long enough that it's probably not an issue and at the outside and all the air and everything that's in that headspace are uh, are going to get fully um, – you know, fully you know, pressure cooked. Um, now, if you're going to reheat the stock, remember the stock is not like it's not really cannibal straight. I mean, it, it is. I mean, if you if you, if you do it long enough, if you follow the procedures, it should be. Long story short, I don't know whether I can feasibly recommend it to you, but I do it. <laughs> right, so, so it's it's not FDA approved, but should probably work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I actually do that because, like, a lot of times, you know, what'll happen is, and, and you know, the, like Harold McGee and Ruhlman got into like a little bit of a thing about Ruhlman saying he just leaves regular stocks out on and then just reheats them, which is what everyone used to do in the old days. You know, they'd keep a soup going for a whole week, and I did that during the blackout here uh, when we had Hurricane Sandy. But, um, but you know that the, the uh, me, you know many times I will have the pressure cooker going, and I don't want to. You know, it's late at no, it's late at night. I want to go to bed. I've made dinner and now I'm making a stock out with the bones that I had left over from the prep out at dinner and I'll leave it overnight and then put it in the fridge in the morning and I don't really feel bad about it. Uh, yeah, because I'm, uh, well, A, I want to do exactly what you just described and also on Thanksgiving, I mean, you know, I'm just running out of space for everything and if I could just run the last pressure cooker with the turkey stock and set it in the garage and forget about it till I need it again, I mean, that's, that's just very helpful. Yeah, I would not leave it forever. It's, I wouldn't consider no, it 100%, no, I, yeah. I'm talking 24, 48 hours max, just enough to get you know, get it done and out of the way when I'm getting ready for a, a big family deal. Yeah, and I'd say reheat it, too. Oh, oh yeah, well, uh, reheating is pretty much the same because anything I would do with it would be going in something hot. Like, uh, I, I make gra- gravy with a fairly dark uh, butter and flour roux, and you know that when the stock hits that gravy, it's I mean, when the stock hits that roux, the roux is about 350 degrees or something ridiculous. Right, right, right. And and and, and then you boil it from there. So I mean, so so reheating is definitively yeah, I mean, part of the program. Yeah, I mean, I mean, most things that are going to develop would be heat labile anyway. If you're going to going to reheat them, I mean, again, like I just feel very hesitant to say it's okay on the air, and yet I do do it. Okay, well, that's that's. Sometimes maybe it's as good as you get. Yeah, yeah. And well, okay, you, you had a second um, question you said? A second, second stock question. I've been run, doing some double and even one triple extraction, which just came out fantastic, um, based on the method you described a month, a month or two ago where you, you know, just keep pulling. You know, you, you run the pressure cooker, uh, let the pressure come down, take one batch of bones out, put the next batch of bones in, and run it again without ever cooling it off. Right. Um, how many times can you do that before something weird happens? Jeez, I know, I don't know. I've never done more than three, um, I, but I figure there's got to be a, a diminishing marginal return. I think you know it's been years since I, 
it's been years since I've done side by sides on that, or, or like mm-hmm. ke- or kept a little back and tasted it. But I bet you that you're not getting much after about about th- two or three, three, uh, three, three on chicken bones, probably three. Uh, but I mean, it really makes a fantastic stock, doesn't it? I mean, that triple stock oh, is oh, crazy. I made, I did a triple extraction um, on some beef bones for foe here a while back, and it was just amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's that. It's like you know, people, no one makes it anymore because you know, if you were actually going to do it, it's it's if a it would be expensive in a restaurant setting, and b it would take forever if you were doing it in, in kind of a standard way. But you can do it so quick, and just the depth of flavor on that stuff's nuts, right? Oh, it's, I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable. And also, it's advantageous for me that the stronger I can make it, I can make soup and dilute, and dilute it back out a little bit, so it, it, it improves my storage efficiency since my freezer is permanently stuffed. Yeah, right. I mean, I got that technique from uh, James uh, Peterson. Uh, I forget which one of you know he was you know one of my favorite cookbook writers back in the in the day. I guess he's still writing, but uh, you know I think that's where I that's where I picked that one up like a long time ago. The the not from the pressure cooker, but just the idea of a triple stock in general, uh, as opposed to as opposed to doing a lot of reductions. Because he was one of the early people that I can remember saying that the you know he preferred uh, you know th- three like more heavy duty uh, bone to water ratios rather than. Uh, rather than you know making a weak stock and reducing it, which is what most people do, and I think it's not as good. And you know, and he kind of railed against that uh, you know a long time ago, and and I, I kind of took that to heart. I think most I mean, people use too much water in their stocks. Period. Well, when you, well, when you're trying to make a living selling it, it's just a different scenario. I mean, I, I don't really care whether my batch of stock costs twelve dollars or fourteen, but I mean, if if you're in business, that can be the difference between making money and losing it. I think that's exactly right. I think it's, and but, but the funny thing is, when people at people at home who can afford to do it that way, like they're emulating the restaurant practice, and not necessarily best practice. You know. Well, it's just, it, it, that's just because it's just the most common idea out there. But you've you certainly helped me out on it a bunch. Oh, well, thanks very much. Um, and then, completely different question. Um, I absolutely love sweet potato fries. My wife doesn't like the texture I get, and that they're just a little too limp. Is, is there some little magic powder from Modernist Pantry that would at least help that problem? You know, I've never, uh, I've never had the luck on the surface of the sweet potato. Uh, you're talking about the surface or the interior? I've never had luck on the surface. I've gotten the interior nice, but I've never had the luck on the surface. Well, I would. I, I, I would try anything that even might get my wife to eat them because they're about 100 times better for you than regular french fries in well, terms of vitamins, if not calories. Well, I, you know, the, you, you go, the only way I've ever done it where I thought it was, like, really good, I cheated and I battered them. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then if you do, like, a like a light batter on them, you can get them crunchy as all get out and then have the sweet potato on the inside. So you doing, so you doing like, egg white and cornstarch? Uh, I know I didn't do – I did uh, – I you know I, last time I did it I did it in wait everyone's gonna hate me now I did it in two thick but usually I only do one kind of batter so and I'm not a fan of like really like kind of light stuff most of the time so I do what I do for fried chicken which is like a flour based like you know pretty hardcore crunchy the, the uh, flour and buttermilk yeah yeah type. yeah. Uh, but you know, I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that you know that's that's what I do. But some sort of whatever your favorite crispy coating is. I'm not a fan. I'm again, I'm going to get I'm going to get nuked on this. I'm not a fan of tempura batters. I think that I've had what is supposed to be very good tempura that other people say was good, and to me, it's n- not as I understand that everyone loves it. It's just not what I love. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I mean you know. 
sometimes you just like something or don't. That's right. I mean, I, I prefer a harder, a harder uh, texture, and I think tempura also goes off too quickly, especially on something high moisture like a sweet potato fry. Listen, one of the problems with sweet potato fries is is it, it's virtually impossible with that high sugar content to get that crunchy kind of coating. You're not lacquering it. Like when people make sweet French fries that are like like shatter on the outside, sometimes they're sweet and they they're almost like lacquered from the outside. But mm-hmm. it's it's so hard because of the way moisture absorption goes into the, the crust to get that crust to stay normal on just a, a sweet potato fry. I would love to hear somebody else's technique of doing it, but I bet you could do it with just uh, you know, a fairly good uh, starch dusting, like maybe Chris Coat or something like that, without going full batter. All right. It's, uh, uh, Chris Coat, it's called? Yeah, Chris Coat. You can give that a try. I mean, hopefully someone will tweet me into the, uh, my Twitter account and say what they do to make their uh, sweet potato fries crunchy. But I'm not like, – a lot of people out there who like sweet potato fries – they like them even though they're not crunchy, but it sounds like your you know, your wife wants them crunchy, right? Well yeah, yeah, she's just she's just very specific about texture of a lot of things and sweet potato fries just don't work for her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at, I mean, at least I have I am having trouble making one that works for her. Yeah, I'm sure you'll get it. I mean like just mean like yeah, I mean I like them, but I, you know, I fry them hard just the same way that I do deep fried okra, which is pretty hard crust, so you know, but you have to like that sort of thing. Oh, I mean, I, I just like fried food, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, fried, fried, frying is a good way of cooking. That's the way it should be. Oh. But anyway. Uh, but, yeah, those are those are my three for the day. All right, well, listen, tweet us in and uh, let us know how it worked out, all righty? Thank you very much. All right, thanks. Uh, Ken, uh, Ken Engberg wrote in, uh, basically calling us, uh, calling not not you, not because me. me, wussy, said, Hi, Nastasha, Dave, enjoyed the Thanksgiving show. Uh, Dave is cutting cornies, corners with his turkey, it seems to me. If uh, mom and stepdad are docs, then Dave has access to equipment. My suggestion, boning the turkey laparoscopically. Uh, like, like, like uh, they don't let me, my mom wouldn't even give me a prescription for quinine to make drinks, so I have to pay, like, retail price for my quinine sulfate. So, you know, it's, they, don't, they don't steal stuff. They're too honest, these guys. Anyway, uh, I was in New York City and planned to have a drink at Booker and Dax uh, and be an audience at one of your shows, but instead found myself holed up in Park Slope for the duration of Hurricane Sandy. Another time, happy Thanksgiving, Kang Ingber. Uh, so, by the way, the turkey was delicious. Delicious. Did I talk about this already? Have we already had a show since Thanksgiving? Turkey was really good. Uh, it was, I think, the best no-tech turkey I've ever done. But and, and anyone can do it. So, like, to recap what I did, uh, took the turkey. It was a 23-pound turkey. I inside-out boned it. So I ripped, all of the, uh, I ripped all of the bones out from inside without cutting the skin in any way. Uh, then uh, I had my mom make uh, – and then I brined it. Now, one of the advantages of boning it before you brine it is that you can fold the turkey up into a small little package and put it, even a 23-pound per, uh, turkey in a fairly small amount of brine. So I put that in a brine. Uh, for a couple of hours, you know, my typical brine, which is uh, no measurement. It's make it taste salty like the ocean and then add enough sugar until you can just barely taste the sweetness. Uh, uh, my mom started making the stuffing. She put the stuffing into the oven, covered so it wouldn't lose its moisture. We pull, uh, pulled the turkey out after a little bit, let it dry, form a pellicle on the skin so that it was nice and tacky, you know, got the inside all rinsed out. And remember, when I inside out boned it, what I took out all of the internal bones and I took out the thigh bone on both sides. I left the, the last arm bone in and I left the wing joint or last leg bone in rather, uh, the drumstick bone, and I left the wing bones in for a little bit of structure. Uh, then I took the stuffing out uh, when it was like scalding hot like, you know, of the full oven temperature and then jammed the first thing I jammed was I jammed it into the thighs. So it started cooking the thighs. Right. Uh, and now we're cooking from the inside out and then jammed it in, made it look like a turkey. 
again. Uh, and now the advantage of the hot stuffing is I'm not going to poison anyone and it's going to speed the cooking and it's going to cook the parts that I boned out like the thigh very quickly in the same fashion that it would the other breast meat because it's getting hot stuff in contact where you wouldn't normally get it right away. Threw the whole thing into a 450 degree oven I think or 400 or something for like an hour and a half, two hours. Well, uh, butter and salt on the thing. thing was good turkey, good turkey. Anyway, so Ken, even though I was cutting uh, corners, uh, it was uh, good turkey, uh, and I think I might do it again that way. It's so much easier than the than the aluminum uh, than the aluminum skeleton. Although Nastasha likes and to more, see me and more traditional. Yeah, well, kind of, yeah, I guess it is more traditional. I guess anything's more traditional than what I was doing. And you, all the stuffing has that awesome flavor from being in the turkey. And, well, all inside-out boning also has the advantage, which everyone should take advantage of, of now you have all the bones, which while it's, while it's uh, what's the word I'm looking for, brining and cooking, you can make a turkey stock right away. So then you can get your gravy base done. And then you can take and deglaze the uh, pan that the turkey comes in. Remember, like everyone, I hate I hate it when I see a turkey in a roasting pan and the sides of the pan are coming up over the side of the turkey and I know that the underside of that turkey is that like nasty, blonde, like flabby, blah. You know what I'm talking about, Stas? Yes. Do you hate that? I do. I lift, lift your turkey up, people. Lift up. Be proud of your turkey. <laughs> lift it above the... The, the rim of the pan. Anyway, uh, and so we got the gravy, and the gravy was done good, bueno, bueno. So it's, it's all around a, a, good, uh, a, good, a good thing. It's all good. Um, so uh, on pressure cookers again, uh, Tom Fisher wrote in and said, Hope you enjoyed your Thanksgivings. I'm looking into getting a Kuhn Recon pressure cooker and was surprised at the number of sizes available and the small difference in price. Uh, is there any reason not to just buy the 8.5-quart stock pot but instead go with the smaller units? We went over that last week, uh, You know, a similar thing. I don't think it was Tom, though. Uh, no, just get the eight and a half quart. It's good. Uh, see how you like that, Stas, for a short, freaking answer. <laughs> you like that? You're still going on, though. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Talking. Yeah, of course Go I'm still talking. One. What? Go to the next question. Okay. Uh, okay, Marty from Eagle Rock writes in, Dave et al. First, I think Katamaro Tempura, which is like an ongoing thing we're talking about, the thing that solidifies oil uh, in Japan, uh, Katamaro Tempura, is, uh, I don't know how you actually pronounce it, is derived from castor oil. I think that's how you pronounce it, though, because it's like tempura, like tempura. Anyway, uh, at least that's what the ingredients page from S.C. Johnson's translates to. Uh, and then there's the Thai castor oil group, whose primary product is cooking oil solidifier. The internet does not lie. Um, and I've been looking up uh, castor oil, and I'm trying to figure out what the heck is in this stuff. Uh, and I got another person saying castor oil in on my Twitter account. Uh, I think it was uh, Clef's. Uh, anyway, so the um, the thing is I still can't figure out what the hell it is. So if you take castor oil, uh, it's like semi-food grade but tastes bad. It comes from the castor plant, which if you don't process it right, can poison you with ricin, which is like a toxin. Anyway, but the, the if you hydrogenate it, it becomes a, a – car- um, castor wax and castor wax has a very high melting point and I think that it, you can use – it's a castor wax. It's a solidifier for the oil because you do it in hot and then when it sets, it sets solid. It's used to harden um, uh, underarm deodorant. Yeah, so it's like hard, like a, like a carnauba wax. But I can't really figure out what's going on. But anyway, uh, Marty's uh, second question is, are there any – well, first question, second comment. Are there any consumer-level reusable products out there for low-temperature cooking? Whenever I cook stuff, I always end up with a pile of plastic freezer bags. I'd love to experiment more, but my inner hippie keeps chastising me, so I don't. You know, this is really an issue. There are some bags out there. Um, and you can reuse them, but it's just so gross that no one does it. You know what I mean? 
it's just it's just nasty. Uh, you know, I'd like to say that there's some sort of like you know paper like on Papa Yote thing that you could do, uh, but I just don't know that it's the case. And like they t- the bags just tend to degrade over time. I haven't used any of the thicker. Uh, there there are a couple of people out there who are making very thick bags that are the equivalent of uh, you remember those Nastasha remember those pencil cases you get when you were a kid yeah. those like yeah they're made, they were made out of vinyl these aren't made out of vinyl because it's gross but I, I haven't had, had time to really really look into them but it's it's really something I'd like to put out to anyone who's listening to the show to think about maybe some alternative like that that doesn't require a constant source of new bags. I mean, obviously there is cooking in in broth and cooking in stock, low temperature by using uh, the actual circulator to circulate the products. There's cooking in jars, but it's just not it's not the same. You know, there's lots of things you can do, but it's just not the exact same thing. Like you can pack a jar 100% full with product, screw it down, and throw it into a bath, and it'll work. But it's it's not the same. It's just not the same as doing it in, in, in a bag. You know what I mean? I, I don't know of a good solution, but I would re- love to hear uh, anyone's uh, good solution. By the way, uh, castor bean oil, hydrogenated castor bean oil, not only used to solidify, but another castor uh, oil product, zinc uh, ricinolate, is the is the is the anti stink in uh, antiperspirants. Oh. I don't know why it absorbs uh, it absorbs the stink, but apparently apparently it do. Um, Okay, are we going to get kicked off the air soon? Oh my god, and I have so many questions. I've not gotten to Charlie Chang. I know I have some questions on Twitter. I'm going to have to get those next time, I guess. Uh, Joel, uh, we did not get a text back from McGee, right? Uh, Let me check. See if we got a text back from Harold. If we got a text back from Harold, then uh, we'll run an extra thirty seconds or something. Do we get one? Anyway. I also have a question that I'd like to spend more time on from Stan Below, so we'll get that next time or maybe get it on uh, the Twitter uh, all about uh, different kind of gelling compounds and, and uh, interested in making vegetarian gummy bears using Gelan, and there actually is a brand new patent on that. We'll have to get into that next time. Uh, one thing I will shout out, I, you know, I'm constantly amazed at the amazing information that's available on the FAO's website, which is the Food and Agricultural Organization of the UN, and they have so many crazy publications out there on like how to grow shrimp in Thailand. Like it's crazy. You can go on there and I, I just – I spent probably – I don't know, stupidly, probably spent two and a half hours last night when I should have been sleeping reading like the FAO's documents on seaweed production. It's not even that it's like super scintillating. You know, It's not like anyone else here would like be like, oh, bam, it's awesome. But I, like, I can't help free information like that. You know what I mean? I know, Dave. Isn't that weird? Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so we did not get it in, right? Nope, no answer. Yeah, no answer from the McGee. All right. He's sleeping. I know. The poor guy's sleeping. He's in, uh, what's it called? He's in uh, the California. Uh, So. Uh, Joel wrote in and said, uh, just listen to the podcast. You made my uh, effing holiday. Thanks for playing my song. Ever since I picked up a copy of On Food and Cooking nine years ago, I've become obsessed with the reasoning for everything I do in the kitchen. As a cook, I would uh, tick off my chefs because I'd explain why their white chocolate uh, ganache wasn't working or how starch types differ in short grain rice and uh, works better in pudding because they don't retrograde like long grain rice does. Well, like you know, most long grain. Obviously, Thai black sticky is uh, – is, uh, anyway, whatever. Uh, now, running a kitchen myself, I make sure that all my cooks question everything they do I teach methods not recipes I promote discovery not uh, conservative French technique although I do like that stuff I mean, when I went to Danielle a bunch of years ago and they presented me with like the whole fish and crust even though it's overcooked I was like I love it I just because uh, I love and it's, you know it felt like you know felt like old school anyway uh, we listen to the podcast during prep crew gets into it uh, we have one caller HRN is seriously awesome cooking issues awesome keep it up Joel thank you Joel uh, we got a caller caller you're on the air yeah 
Dave Arnold. What's up? This is Jeremiah Bullfrog. How are you, sir? I'm doing awesome. How you, how's Miami? Good, man. Nice. Hot, hot and sunny, like we like it. <laughs> I've the... got a burning question for you. All right, what's up? I'm trying to emulsify powdered spices into brine. Right. Is there a trick to uh, getting it, keeping it from separating? Uh, okay. Like, how thick is the brine allowed to be? I mean, the thing is, I don't know that it's gonna. I mean, you could do like the typical th- thing. I mean, emulsif- You're not really emulsifying the spice. You're you're actually stabilizing it. So, like, the classic thing would be to hit it with some xanthan, but then it's gonna be kind of snotty. You know what I mean? Right. Think like if we're doing pickled cauliflower. Right. Like half sour style in like a five percent brine. Oh, brine, not like brine, brine like serving brine. I got you. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you could do a like a gel, like a light gel and fluid gel, depending on the salt level. The problem with brines is the salt level is so high. Like I've had no luck making fluid gels with kimchi liquid because it's just it's just too it's just too strong. You know what I mean? They right. so, so it might not be able to do like gel. Whereas xanthan would work in something like that, which is why they do it in uh, in salad dressing. But like really freaking light amount of xanthan. I've done a bunch of tests with just very 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 light amount of xanthan. Uh, you know, like less than a quarter of a percent, or at a quarter, you know, one quarter, one percent, or less, less. Right. And so break out the uh, break out the drug dealer scale and and just keep it real light. Yeah, and let it hydrate for a good like twenty, thirty minutes before you uh, make add add or de- you know add anything more to it, so that you make sure it's it. You want to get there's a there's a point at which you can stop it from settling for let's say like. 30 minutes you know what i mean so which is more right. than enough for service you know are you doing it for a shelf or for service um i mean we're gonna put it up as a preserve and then you know seven to ten days pull it out and use it right so but then like just like a couple of quick like back and forth and it'll it'll come back do you know what i mean right you think i should hit it in the um in the vita prep yeah you should definitely hit it in the vita prep and you should do it if it, are they are they lactic fermented things or are they um yeah super super lactic oh you see you might have problems because uh it's like some lactic acid bacteria can ferment xanthan but i don't know uh you might have to add it afterwards like to the brine right. I, I might have to think about it i've never tried to stabilize a uh, like a pickle brine uh i mean salad dressings i've done all day every day and the brine uh, because I have to think about it, but I would try like a I would try a low amount of xanthan. I would pull the brine out, uh, add the xanthan to it, and then add the brine back and stir it rather than doing it beforehand. Because once it's really fermented out, it's not going to keep fermenting because they've you know that they've done their best and the acidity is already low, so it's not going to get a lot more you know sour, especially if it's already mm-hmm. gone. And so then uh, I think the xanthan will be okay at that point. Whereas if you do it earlier, you, you might run into I don't know if those bacteria eat xanthan, but I know some do. Right. Um, also, on the same token, we're doing um, we're doing press juices, and I was wondering what are like some commercial tricks to keep the juice from you know separating when we bottle it up. Uh, oh, you because you want it to be you want it to stay again. Like those guys usually add some form of pectin, so uh, you know to, to things like that to stabilize it. Um, you can add other things, but I think they usually use some form of pectin to stabilize it. Like they add like a functionalized pectin. I right. I don't have the pectin stuff in my head. Piper does. Uh, shoot me a like shoot a shoot it to the to the cooking issues Twitter, and I'll force Piper to write down what it is that you're supposed to use. Cool. 
cool. And then do you think like um, ultra, ultrasonic homogenizer would be cool for that too? I don't know, man. Because the thing about it is, is that like, yeah, that'll that'll make things last longer, but break by breaking down the particles. But they they're not so good at breaking down like certain solid sizes. So it depends on what's floating in there. Like I've like I've had good luck doing emulsions with that, like making milks with it, uh, like you know, like duck fat into duck stock and making like a milky duck thing. But I haven't had uh, a lot of luck just like making a juice finer. Do you know what I mean? But I mean, right. your results may vary. Like, like everything else, like when you're experimenting with a, like a zillion things, like you, if you have like early success with one thing, or if you really love something, then you keep working at it till you get it right. And if you don't, you just don't follow down that line. So, like, I never got into like you know hitting seawater with my ultrasonic homogenizer to see what happened. You know what I mean, or, or anything like that. Right. And I remain unconvinced. Do you have one? No, I don't. But um, you know, give me a reason to go get one. And <laughs> yeah. well, next next time you're in the city, stop by to uh, stop by, and uh, I'll let you use mine. See what you think about it. Awesome. Thank you, Dave Arnold. All right, brother. Uh, All right, take it easy. Man. All right, cool. Now on the way out, I got one more thing on the way out. Don't you want me to? Don't you want me to read from uh, Brett Adams? I would. But All right. It's so hard Jack, do I got like I two minutes? Do I got do two it, minutes? Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Okay. Uh, listen, Brett. Like, I'm going to answer your question uh, next week on spices and uh, w- you know why you, uh, you dry roast spices because it requires a longer answer. But I'm going to read the other thing you said about how like sometimes uh, this makes us happy. This is feedback that I like. I have both a question for the radio show uh, and a quick story to recount that all of you, specifically Dave, may appreciate. Regarding the latter, I first became aware of Dave and cooking issues a few years ago when I was searching online for further information on a tortilla making that wasn't fully covered in a Diana Kennedy cookbook, who's a great cookbook writer. Uh, uh, I stumbled on Dave's blog uh, post on nixtamalization, learned a ton, and have been a regular listener ever since. Thank you. And I've had a few delicious cocktails at Booker and Dax last time I was in New York. One particular part of the post that stood out to me was how the process of nixtamalization releases bound niacin in mature corn, uh, which is why when Europeans took it but didn't take over the nixtamalization, they got pellagra. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, okay. I later recounted this to my roommate who is both a nurse and an avid home cook. L- uh, this last summer, um, this roommate spent three months at a refugee camp in South Sudan volunteering for Doctors Without Borders. One day he was eating lunch with the man in the charge of the food rations for the camp of 50,000 plus people, and the rations guy brought up that they were likely going to have to switch the rations from sorghum which, you know, I've never experimented with a lot. Anyway, to maize. Uh, my roommate, remembering what I had told him, asked if he had heard of nixtamalization, specifically about its ability to re- uh, release digestible niacin, which, as I'm sure you can guess, is a big deal in a refugee camp. The director had never heard of it but was intrigued, went away to do some research, and later told my roommate that they had been uh, begun learning to nixtamalize the corn for the rations. My roommate left shortly thereafter, so I have no idea if the full switch to maize was made, but I think it's pretty cool that your research in a kitchen in New York, uh, through somewhat random events, could possibly have a very significant significant uh, positive impact on the other side of the world thought you'd like to hear that i do like to hear that uh brett but in fact uh it's your uh it's your paying attention to it uh, i paid attention to it when someone else said it and you paid attention to it when i said it so it's it's you paying attention to it and remembering it and that's how all good things are learned and all good things are transmitted by people paying attention tucking away information and taste in their head and making the world a better place cooking issues I'll see you in Special shout out to Plexiphonic whose submitted theme song is not able to be used for legal reasons. This is I'll See You in My Dreams by Plexiphonic. You've been listening to Cooking Issues. Still I feel the thrill of your charms. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.